Welcome to Vegan Business Talk with Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business. Hello and welcome to episode 91 of Vegan Business Talk. I'm Katrina Fox, journalist, author, media and PR coach, copywriter, editor and proofreader, and founder of Vegan Business Media, a content events and training platform providing success tips for vegan business owners and entrepreneurs. Now, before we get into the main part of the show, I wanted to let you know that I've opened up enrollment again to my online PR course and group coaching program, Vegans in the Limelight. I ran the course for the first time earlier this year, that's 2017 if you're listening in the future, with a group of vegan business owners and entrepreneurs from across the globe over a 12-week period. And it now comes with a full 12 months of group coaching, including monthly live Q&A calls. You can also post your questions on the learning platform and you can post your pitches to get feedback from me before you send them to journalists. So you've basically got me holding your hand, helping you to do your own PR for a full year. It's a great value program. It's way more affordable than similar courses. And it's the only one that's specifically aimed at vegan and plant-based business owners and entrepreneurs. Some of the current students have already got media coverage in mainstream and specialist newspapers, magazines, radio and TV shows. So if you'd like to get your vegan brand or yourself featured in the media, but don't have the budget to hire a publicist or a PR agency, then I highly recommend you check out this program. You get full and immediate access to the materials as soon as you enroll. You can find out all the details by going to veganbusinessmedia.com and clicking on the link for the course Vegans in the Limelight. In this episode, I interview Deborah Denniston, co-founder with her daughter Rachel of HFS Collective, formerly known as Hipsters for Sisters, a fashion brand in Los Angeles aimed at liberating women from their baggage. Great tagline, I love it. (laughs) The brand is renowned for its belt bags, a much more stylish and colourful alternative to fanny packs, or bum bags if you're based in the UK or Australia. An artist at heart, Deborah loved colour, texture and shape as a child and taught herself to sew by the age of five. But due to pressures from her parents to pursue more sensible career options, her journey into the fashion industry only happened much later in life when HFS was launched five years ago. Up until then, she worked in a variety of sectors, including three years practising law. HFS has recently expanded into cross-body bags, as well as releasing a new collection made from Pinatex, the pineapple leather alternative. In this episode, Deborah talks about how her daughter's embarrassment led to the concept of the brand, why she and Rachel changed the name of the business despite a successful launch, the benefits of being in business with her daughter, the costs involved in using certified sustainable fabrics, the challenges of making bags locally in Los Angeles, how doing their own PR resulted in a slew of sales from the UK, and much more. Here's the interview with Deborah Denniston from HFS Collective. Hello, Deborah. Thank you very much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Hi, Katrina. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. 
Oh, and I'm very excited to um, have you on the show. As we were just saying before we came on air, I'm I'm really excited about your um, your brand and what you do because you've got a really unique product, the belt bag, which I had no idea existed, and I, I think it's it's really innovative. So I'm looking forward to finding out more about that and, of course, your business journey. So um, the very first question I ask all guests, as regular listeners know, is the why. So why do you do what you do? What's the why behind your business? The why behind um, our business started, do you want the, the long story? <laughs> um, um, the kind of medium. <laughs> okay. Well, it all started back in the day when my kids were um, in diapers. And I used to run around the park with them and leave all the diapers and the bottles and the food in the diaper bag. And I'd wear the fanny pack running around so I wouldn't have to lug that chasing them up a tree and stuff like that. <laughs> so I got addicted to wearing the fanny pack. And at the time, it was somewhat socially acceptable to do that. But then as time went on, it became less so. And then when my kids went to school and were able to talk back, they would say, Mom, could you please leave your fanny pack in the car when you pick <laughs> us up from school today because we find it kind of embarrassing. So, you know, I did that for the next, what, 10 years or so, um, because I didn't want to embarrass them. But I always kind of missed that liberation and freedom that I had when I used to wear it. And so it was always haunting me in the back of my mind. So when the kids went off to college, I had the idea, well, you know, hey, <laughs> they're gone. I can pull a fanny pack back out. <laughs> and so I did, and I pulled it out of the closet, and I thought, oh, my gosh, they were right. This is really hideous. I can't believe I ever used to wear this thing. And then I got it in my head that I'm going to make a one that was cute and functional and that one that even my kids would not be embarrassed for me to wear. And so that was the why. I was on a mission to liberate women from their baggage. And I was going to do it in a cute way that was um, that no one would be embarrassed about anymore. I love that. And I love that tagline, liberate women from their baggage. That's very cool. I, I really like that. Um, so, what was, so what's your professional background, Deborah? Like, had you had any experience in the fashion industry? Tell us a bit about, yeah, how, your, your background. Um, absolutely none. I've always <laughs> been an artist at heart. Um, I wanted to be an artist from the time I was in college, but my parents were so practical, they really discouraged me from doing that. And so I ended up going to law school. Oh, um, wow. And I practiced law for maybe three to three or four years afterwards, but it was always in the my heart to be an artist. And so um, I ended up painting and being a visual artist for um, for years. But in the back of my mind, I um, so when I was doing that, then I raised my kids and, you know, then I got this idea about the fanny pack and then that took over the art and that's where, how I ended up where I am. Wow. That's fascinating. What an interesting journey, uh, you know, to go from something very different, uh, like law to, to doing this. So do you design, uh, cause one of my questions was who makes the, the designs or who creates the design. So being an artist, do you do that, Deborah? Well, my daughter, Rachel, who is also my partner, um, is also an artist. She, well, she was an art history and Chinese major in college. Oh. And so she's, she actually started working with me her senior year of college on this project. So we both have the um, design eye. So 
equally collaborate on the designs of the bags at this point. And um, this seems to work out really well. It's, it seems like it would be hard to have two opposing views, but we seem to like do it somehow really well together. That's great. And I imagine then you, you're appealing to kind of the both demographics with the different, the age difference maybe that that's kind of helping you to appeal to a broader audience. Yes. I think that's, that's, that's actually part of um, what makes us as strong as we are because I, I'm a baby boomer and my daughter, uh, Rachel is a millennial. Ah. And so between the two of us, <laughs> you, you've, got somehow, the yeah, you've got the markets. Well, you've got those two markets covered. Oh, awesome. That's great. Right. And how lovely then that. So they, so Rachel stopped being embarrassed and she's fully embraced the business and come on board. That's pretty exactly. cool. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, she never takes her belt bag off. now. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. Wonderful. I love how you've just, you've really kind of hit um, a niche in the market. As I say, I, I've not heard of these things before. I thought, cause I've, I've used bum bag. I used to wear them a lot as well. And similar to you it just got to the point where I realized that they don't actually look that great they may be practical the only time I do wear them and I'll be wearing one next week actually is when I go on a long haul flight because they are so practical but I love the fact that you've yeah you've combined them into something cool and pretty and and, and lovely so that's great now I want to talk to you a bit about the name so the the name is now HFS Collective but it used to be called Hipsters for Sisters which is kind of cool tell us about the um, the evolution of the name from Hipsters for Sisters to HSS Sure. Well, Hipsters for Sisters was the original name because that's what it was. We were um, we were about liberating women from their baggage, like I said earlier. And so we thought, well, and we and we were calling these belt bags hipsters, which you know, and then for sisters because we're liberating women from their baggage. So it was the hipsters for the sisters. And we would donate at the time five percent of every sale to organizations that helped empower women. So that's how that name got started. Um, how it evolved is is through the five years that we've been in, in business. Well, there's two reasons we, we changed the name. Uh, one is there are two other companies with similar names doing similar things. And we found that people were confusing us. Mm-hmm. And um, it was kind of hard to deal with because we had trademarked our name, but this other company had also trademarked theirs. Oh. So why, you know, why get into that whole thing? <laughs> <laughs> Not that there are any legal issues. It's just that we would get phone calls for them and we'd say, no, that's not us. And sometimes we would talk to, um, maybe a media outlet and they'd say, oh, we just did a story on you. And we'd say, no, you didn't. Oh, that was, I <laughs> that see. was them. So we thought, okay, <laughs> we need to differentiate ourselves because they had a different product but a similar name so we it's just better to avoid the confusion the second reason is because as we've grown and listened to our customers and what's what they want from us we've started adding more product into our our line like little wallets and this year we've come up with um a commuter tote as well because this is what our customers are saying. They're like, yes, I'd love to wear the belt bag for, for every day running around. But sometimes if I'm going to work for the day, I've got to bring my water and my other pair of shoes and, right. you know, things that I need to get through the day. So can you guys make a tote that matches the, the belt bag? And that would be a nice set. So that's what we ended up doing this season for the first time. And we plan on doing more of that. Um, because we have a pretty loyal um, customer base, 
but they can only wear so many belt bags. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. And, so, um, yeah. So, so who are, yeah, current. No, carry on. Uh, so anyway, that's that's the story of why we decided to change that name. I like the name Hipsters for Sisters. It makes people smile. Yeah, um, yeah. But in HFS is a little harder to remember, but it's it's bringing along the old into the new. I yeah, think, yeah, HFS. exactly. Now it's interesting that you say that because, uh, and it, it, like you say, you've kind of got to make a decision in that instance. And if you're constantly, yeah, being mixed up with another brand, then it makes sense to to make that change. So you've obviously been proactive there. So talking about your clientele, um, who are your main uh, customers, and approximately, anecdotally, what percentage do you think are vegan? Well, it's a it's a good question because it's really hard to tell sometimes who our customers are. They seem to be equally divided. I mean, there's a lot of them are are like me, and a lot of them are like Rachel, <laughs> right? Uh, and and all in between. I think it's almost like any woman that has the the just feels that need for liberation. I think um, you know, is, is our customer. So we have a lot of baby boomers and, and older women. My mother-in-law loves her belt bags. Um, she uses a, uh, a cane and the belt bag makes it so much easier for her to get around because if she has that purse on her shoulder and the cane, yeah. it throws her off balance. She's 92. So she loves using the belt bag. Oh, wonderful. Um, Rachel's friends, her, of uh, the, the, the millennials love it too. It's great for dancing, for going yes, out. For the yes. evening. They don't have to put their bag on the bar. <laughs> yeah, or on the dance floor. You know, their, <laughs> dance their phones, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so, yeah, I think it appeals to actually a, to a wide variety of women. For sure. Uh, which is kind of nice. Yeah, for sure. Now, you mentioned you've been in business for about five years now. Let's go back right. to the beginning. Tell us a little bit about, um, we'll look at some of the challenges. So one of the things that I, when I speak to a lot of uh, vegan business owners and small business owners that are working in the ethical space is a lot of times vegan products, and including in the fashion um, sector, they, they end up being the end product ends up being pricier because you're not able to get the discounts available in bulk purchases of raw materials um, and and some other issues. How do you handle that? Um, that's a good question. Uh, our bags are a lot more expensive than um, a lot of other products because not only are we ordering in small, I mean, there is a, like a, uh, if you buy your products by the roll, that's like 50 yards or more, you get a, a good price. But anything less than that, you get surcharged for. And 50 yards makes a lot of little belt bags. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, in one color, right? It's like we could be selling those for 20 years. <laughs> but um, so we, I mean, sometimes we do buy in, in the roll, but sometimes we don't. But that charge isn't as great as um, the biggest charge for us is because it's because we use sustainable um, fabrics and those are because you can have pretty cheap like pvc um like for five dollars a yard but that that's really like a toxic material that and it's a vegan material but it's toxic right and, um, unfor unfortunately a lot of the um vegan bags that you'll see at um some of the like targets or um, Walmarts or whatever are, are the like, you know, lower end forever 21s, things like that. 
the vegan leathers are, are made out of um, cheaper materials. So we could, and part of our uh, brand is we're a sustainable company. Not only are we vegan, but we're also sustainable. So we only use um, materials that are certified to be eco-friendly. And that comes at a great price right now because um, there's not a huge market for sustainable fabrics still at this point. So the companies that are making them aren't making them in great quantities and they're charging a lot of money for them. Um, mm. But I think it's important because um, I can't see doing it any other way. That's just, you know, who we are. And so that's um, why our bags probably cost more than the ones you'd see at Target. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Even though they're both vegan. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's so frustrating, though, isn't it? That, you know, businesses that are doing the right thing by people, by animals, by planet uh, are being penalized, essentially. And it's, it's, we definitely need to change that system for sure. Um, you mentioned that you have your products certified um, in a sustainable way. Can you tell us a bit about that and, and, and what costs are involved, in, if any, in doing that? Well, our bags, the, we don't have our products, our finished products certified, but we only buy fabrics that are um, certified to be eco-friendly. Oh, okay. Got it. And they are okay, come at a higher price than, as you say, than the, exactly. the cheap ones. Exactly. So, right. Some of our fabrics are up to $90, $90 a yard, um, oh, wow. but they're beautiful and yeah. they're worth every penny because they're not polluting the planet. They're not pollute. They're not killing the people that are making them. Um, so I think that's important as a vegan yeah, brand. For People sure. are animals too. <laughs> Absolutely. And you make them locally. They're made locally in LA as well. What are the challenges and benefits of that? Um, it's still really hard to get things locally. I mean, handbags are um, kind of a, in a unique sector. They make a lot of denim and other types of apparel in Los Angeles. Um, and some of that's never left. And a lot of it's come back. But the handbags are really, I mean, that's still primarily done offshore so, somewhere else, China, India, um, and other places. So finding uh, factories to make them in Los Angeles is a, a big challenge. And now that people are starting to demand a little bit more and, and respect the Made in USA label, it's even harder um, to get them done, especially because we're competing with. Um, mainstream leather companies who um, who are much bigger than we are so you know the, the manufacturers like well they give them priority over us because we're a much smaller um, brand and we have smaller numbers to run so getting our bags even after five years made is is still a challenge because we're competing with uh, like the factory that makes our bags makes bags for pretty big brands as well. So we're always kind of um, at the bottom of the, <laughs> of the queue, you know? Um, so that's still challenging, but I still think it's worth it because we know every single person that makes our bags. We know that they're paid fairly. We know what kind of working conditions they go to every day. And um, we, we like that and we, and we feel comfortable having our bags made like that. Yeah, that's great because that's that's often not the case. Like you say, when it's overseas, you know, you can never be a hundred percent sure. So that's great that you can say they're truly ethical bags for people right. on this planet. The other challenge is the cost of having them made here is so much higher. Um, 
because we have you know the minimum wage and <laughs> where they don't have that in in other countries right um, as a matter of fact we were talking to someone um recently at an event we were doing who who have their bags made in china and they're saying that they have them made for the price they get they said six dollars a bag and oh, we were wow. like what that's <laughs> that's <laughs> like you know how do you pay someone six dollars i mean for a finished bag yeah and wow. like if you figure a bag takes at least two hours of human labor to make how do you pay for a finished? How do you pay someone six dollars for that? You know, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and that's just so you figure if that's what they're paying the business for having, and that's including the shipping. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and the packaging, and it comes in a gift box. Oh wow! Up. So, how much are those people being paid an hour to, to do that? Probably Thanks. like fifty cents. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So do you convey that to your customers so that they know? Because I know sometimes when I've spoken again to other vegan business owners who say, oh, you know, I often get people complaining, you know, why are your products so expensive? Why are they so inaccessible? And it's because often they don't know this, you know, they, they don't realize all of this that we're talking about now. So do you find that by sharing like the story behind the brand and the products and letting people know that, that they are therefore they get it and therefore they're willing to pay that extra to get a truly ethical bag? Right. I think our customers that our customers that buy our bags get it. And that's why they're willing to pay a premium where they can maybe get something similar for a lot less somewhere else that's where they have you know, they have no idea where it was made, how it was made, what materials are in it. But um we do tell our story online and I think like one of the greatest rewards of doing what we do is when we have customers write us letters and tell us how much they love what we're doing, how much they respect what we're doing. And they give us like a, um, it's, it just makes the day to hear that people get it and, and that's why they're buying from you. So, yeah, fantastic. Now that's, that's great. Now you've chosen to run the business as an online one. So selling direct customers. Um, tell us about that decision and why you haven't gone down the, say the physical store route or getting into retail stores. I think it's, I think, um, I think because some of the reasons we just discussed, our bags are so much more um, than other vegan bags. So I think, and I think also there's this history of people look at, especially mainstream stores, not vegan stores, but like a, a like a Nordstrom or, um, you know, a Macy's will look at a, a faux leather bag and think, oh, this should be cheap because it's not real leather. Yeah. And so that's a, and if you have no one to explain your story or explain what is involved in that bag. Um, what it's made with, how, how it's made out of recycled plastic bottles, how it's made out of, you know, the, the leftovers from the pineapple harvest, you know, whatever it is, the story, if they don't, if it's just sitting there and the price tag is three times what they're used to paying for a faux leather or not a leather bag, they're not going to understand it unless they, unless they know the brand and, and your, and our story. So we find the best way to, to sell our bags is online where people can read about us, read the story, understand that the interiors are made with organic cotton, that the 
outsides are made with certified eco-friendly materials that the brass is low level uh, solid brass, uh, low level lead, you know? And so you don't see all that on the shelf. And without someone explaining it to the customer, they're not gonna understand that. So that's been our major challenge yeah, um, that's an interesting one. Doors. Yeah, I remember talking to, I think it was a, someone who has shoes, you know, quite a high-end kind of vegan shoe brand, and she was saying it's that that was a similar experience, and she had to go educate the buyers as well in these places, like, you know, Nordstrom or what have you, because they had that same perception, oh, well, if it's not leather, you know, it's not luxurious in some way. So there's obviously oh, some way to go there. Exactly. I can't tell you the number of times that we've done a pop-up or been at some, like a boutique pop-up, and then a customer will say, oh, this is the cutest thing I've ever seen. And then they start petting it and saying, this is real leather, right? And then I'm just <laughs> like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's like, where do you start in that education of how toxic leather is to the planet? Yeah. You know, not only mm -hmm. to the animals, but to, I mean, who, who die for that, but also to the planet, which is being so polluted from the leather industry. People have no idea. And it's like, it takes a half an hour to explain the situation. Yes, them, you know? yeah. It's like you're selling your product and you're educating at the same time. <laughs> yes, and, you know, and that's what the best way to do that is online where we have the room and the people's attention to educate them that if they don't know. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Um, so in terms of um, the marketing and PR, so what have been some of the marketing strategies that you've used that have been successful in growing the business over the past five years? Well, Rachel does all of our marketing. Um, we have not up, up until this point actually paid for marketing. We tried having, um, we hired a PR firm for like a, a trial six month period um, to try and, you know, get news stories about our brand and get the product in different people's hands. But it wasn't very successful for, for some reason. So we, we stopped doing that and, um, so Rachel's been just trying to promote the brand through social media and through sending out like letters herself to editors. Um, I think no one, I think this is, again, goes back to no one understanding our brand as well as we do to explain it to people. Right. Um, right. So she's doing your, that Rachel's doing the, your own PR. Right. So she's yeah. reaching out to editors and talking to people and trying to get, you know, our brand out there so that people can learn about it. Um, she's, she was pretty, she's pretty good at the social media with the Instagram and Facebook. Um, but now that Facebook has started, you know, they really want you to pay. Oh yeah. <laughs> as a business now, <laughs> like nobody sees your posts, right. Unless you pay. Cause that's, I mean, that's their business. Um, yeah. So you spend all this time building up your, your audience, but then you, no one sees anything you say unless you pay for it. Um, and then now Instagram's gone the same way. So what we did was like before Instagram went that way, she started diverting all her attention more toward Instagram versus, <laughs> you know, Facebook. But now Instagram's gone the same way where you have to actually pay to have your post seen for the most part. Right. So right. I think we're just going to have to start doing that, which, um, I mean, it's, it's fair, you know, I guess, to, um, but it just kind of 
shocking that you have to keep changing things as the world around you changes. Yeah, absolutely. It's <laughs> always kind learning of a, new, you yeah, know, new ways and absolutely. new ways to deal with things. So, yeah, it's it's constantly changing. So, at the moment, Facebook and uh, Instagram are your kind of key social media platforms, right? And I think That's she does a little bit on Twitter. Um, we do, you know, and then our newsletter to our customers, um, email marketing. Fantastic. Now you've, you've touched on media and PR and um, you've actually been featured, I noticed, in, in quite a few media. I noticed you've been in Refinery29 uh, and some other, you know, quite high profile ones. And I say, I saw you in Veg News. So how did that come about? Well, the, most of those came about through Rachel's efforts of reaching oh, out to people. Yeah, sometimes um, you're, we're surprised that we're, we suddenly appear in something or sometimes it's the result of her having reached out to um to those publications or those editors oh good um, oh that's that's good to know I'm always looking for examples because one of the things I teach is I some my background's journalism I teach people how to do their own PR so I'm always looking for good examples particularly of vegan businesses who have had success doing that so that's uh, that's great so let's give Rachel she's not on the call but we'll just give Rachel a shout out very well done Rachel <laughs> <laughs> thank you she'll love that <laughs> fantastic so what have been the um what have been the benefits to the media coverage would you say well it's I, mean, I think primarily uh, people think oh if you get your your bags featured in something you're going to just rake in the sales from that but that hasn't always been the case we've can you can be in a publication and and that have a great uptick in sales or you can be in a publication and and have all these sales come in. It's kind of unpredictable. Um, I remember one day we're like, Oh, what's going on? We keep getting all these sales from the UK. Like what, where are all these sales? (laughs) We had no idea, but it, we were, I guess it was look magazine had done a feature on our, um, on our brand and did a whole story about us, which we didn't even know about. (laughs) <laughs> so we finally asked, started asking these people, how did you hear about us? Uh, and they said, oh, you were in Look Magazine, you know. So fantastic. sometimes you just don't even know. I don't even know how that happened, right? Right. Oh, that's good. So, that's good to know. Like you said, it's always good as a credibility builder. So it's always great that you're getting sales from it, which is wonderful. And it also looks good. And you've done absolutely the right thing as well on your website by putting the logos there as featured in, because it does give that sense of credibility. Like even when I looked at it, you know, and I'm, I'm a journalist, I looked at it and thought, oh, we've been in Refinery Trend, they've been in this and the other. It immediately gives that sense of authority and credibility. So. Right. Just getting those logos on there, but great to know you've also been getting some sales as well, which is fantastic. Right, it's like frosting on the cake. Yeah, totally. So in terms of competition, um, now there's obviously, there are far more diverse range of vegan handbags nowadays or vegan fashion, although I'd still say from what I can gather, you're pretty, you've got a pretty unique product in the, the type of belt bags that you offer, but I know you're now going into these additional products. So I'm just curious, how do you go about, or how do you foresee going about standing out with your new products, um, both sort of within the vegan business or fashion arena and mainstream? Well, that's another good question. And that's, we're always trying, like, I think if you have a business, it's about um, making your product, but it's also about evolving as, as things change. You know, you've got to keep seeing, you have to see what's going on. You have to see what people are asking you for, um, what your customers want. Um, and it, as far as the competition, there's a lot of, there's a lot of vegan bag brands out there right now. Um, 
how we differentiate our, you know, at first we were thinking, okay, our bags are so expensive. We try to get our price lower and lower to compete with some of these other vegan brands. Um, and then we realized, well, what are we doing? We, we, that's not, you know, they make their bags in China or whatever, or, or they don't really make, they don't use certified eco-friendly materials. How do we compete with them? We, we can't. So we decided, well, okay, instead of going down and trying to cut everything to compete, we decided, well, okay, let's just be true to who we are and, and price our bags the way we should and do everything sustainably, um, you know, from, from the hardware we use to the linings, to the outside of the bags, to pack everything. And, um, and that's how we hope to keep differentiating ourselves from our competition by, um, you know, making that the, 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 uh, difference. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um, no, that's, that's great. Like you say, it's, it's, it's easy to do, isn't it? To fall into that trap of, oh, okay, I'll try and compete on price. But, you know, unless you can genuinely compete on price, it's never a good idea because then you end right. up stressed and like you say, not, not authentic to your brand. And Right. We just thought that was, uh, you know, something we could never win unless yeah. we decided to make our bags offshore and use like a, a, um, a different quality material. And we just didn't want to do that. And why? I mean, there's already, that niche is already filled. So just be true to ourselves and, and keep doing what we're doing and don't worry about the competition. Just be who we are. And so we're more expensive and the people that value what we value will hopefully stick with us and be our customers. Fantastic. Now, what about the use of the word vegan in your marketing materials on your website and the prominence of the word? Because, you know, there's the two schools of thought. Oh, it's a bit of a scary word. We shouldn't use it. And then now it's become a bit more trendy. So now we can use it. So I ask this question to everyone and there's no right or wrong answer. I just love hearing people's take on it. So at at first glance at your website, it's not big on the website. So tell us a little bit about your choice of how much uh, to use the word or not. Right. We've decided not to use the word. Um, we call it the V word. <laughs> <laughs> because it does, I mean, I'd say half of our customers are vegan and half are not. Right. Um, half of our customers care about sustainability and the planet, uh, even though they may not be vegan. But those go hand in hand because vegan is the most sustainable option. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's a turnoff for a lot of people that are not vegan. It's like it's almost like the V can burn them. <laughs> I think I think they see it as a personal attack because if they're not vegan, they think, "Oh, this is not for me. This is just for vegans." Um, we want to be more inclusive to all people. We figure, like, okay, the vegans know we're here. They know how to look for the vegan labels. Um, but we, you know, if we if we excluded everyone but vegans, I, we couldn't stay in business because vegans are such a small percentage of the population, um, and those and and not only are they a small percentage, our bags are priced at uh, such a high price point for a lot of people, um, we'd probably be out of business. Right. So we have to keep it open to to more people. And that's um, how we've chosen to approach it more from a sustainability perspective. Um, and vegan is just happens to be 
the most sustainable option um, for, you know, for our bags. Yeah. Yeah, got it. No, it's interesting. I said there's no right or wrong answer to this. I'm always just curious, uh, yeah, to get people's different uh, take on it. And if it's working for you and it's getting more people, you know, getting people to buy your bags rather than leather bags or animal bag yeah, based bags. I really then. think it depends on, on the product itself. Like if you had a T-shirt brand that, that was like um, embracing veganism, well, then of course you'd want to um, – say this is a vegan <laughs> these t-shirts are all about being vegan because you know that's a great thing i mean that's what it is but if you have a, a company like ours that is vegan and then some other things you know it's bigger than just vegan so we don't want to um narrow it down too much got it got it no thanks for sharing does that, that. makes sense I yeah know, I yeah no it does it does and i noticed you had the word i think cruelty free is used so right. often, you know, vegans like us can like you say we can kind of decipher that and we we, we know right. that it's, it's we're good at looking for the clues yeah <laughs> what's this label what does this mean uh, <laughs> so you think De- this is vegan yes <laughs> so deborah um for those people who and because i love the fact that you you started this business without having any uh, uh, fashion background, fashion industry background. So for people that are perhaps in a, a similar situation as to you were five years ago, and they maybe they've got their day job and then they, they want to start their own business, it might be in fashion or it might be some other kind of business. What would you say are the key things they must take into account before making that jump from employed or employee to running their own business? Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure how to answer that, except, you know, make sure that you've got enough revenue stream coming in that's consistent, that can support you um, before you quit your day job. Um, It's not easy to do, you know, like even after five years, we're just basically breaking even. Um, So, you know, once you start, you know, making enough money where if the flow is consistent and you can you feel like you can rely on it I think that's the time to jump in but yeah it's an um, interesting one the funding one and I was going to touch on that in regards to uh, you know as much as you're comfortable sharing you know what were some of the methods you used to get the business off the ground and to maintain it and the pros and cons of those approaches um well you know my IRA <laughs> that's, <laughs> uh, that's about it and oh so what is that just because we've got an international audience can you just explain oh, briefly what that is my, like my, my retirement account <laughs> oh got it okay got it right <laughs> it's, it's how we funded um you know five years ago i took part of my retirement account and, and used that to fund to start off the business oh, cool okay Great. um we had we have no funding from any anyone else we we're totally self-funded um you know, wouldn't be a bad idea to get um, some investors in right about now. <laughs> right. Oh, there's also, um, I've noticed they've, they've just relaxed the rules in the US and I've noticed a couple of vegan companies are going down that route of um, equity crowdfunding. So it's not like regular crowdfunding where someone just donates to you, but they actually can right. buy like a small part of it. And it's like sort of, you know, crowdsource, people source, but they actually like own a little bit of the company. And I think that's, you know, starting to uh, be something that could be quite successful for particularly for small business owners to start to scale up and actually get right. people, you know, that are really into your brand. And they're not just because, you know, with regular crowdfunding, I think sometimes get people are getting a bit bored with that and they don't just want to donate. But if they feel like they're getting, you know, a little piece of the, the company, but it's not as like major as say having a big investor who could then control your company. So that I think that's such a brilliant idea. I think, uh, 
Yeah, I think one of uh, a company of Vote Couture just did that. I'm not yes, sure. Yes, yeah, Leanne did with Vote Couture. Yeah, I think she right. did quite well. Yeah, raised a, a good few thousand, uh, tens of thousands of dollars, I think, for, for the I brand. think I thought that was a brilliant idea because, yeah. you know, if you have a loyal following, you know, and people that really love your brand, they'd maybe want to invest in it. Yeah. Like yeah. you're saying. So that's maybe something we'll look at down, down the um yeah, the, cool. But thank you for sharing that. I think it's good to know. And I appreciate you as well sharing the fact that, you know, you even after five years, you're just breaking even because I think that's important for people to hear that, you know, you're not just going to start a business straight away and it's immediately going to be in profit that, you know, you've got to kind of think in the long term and, um, you know, invest in the business to, to get it to, to that stage. So, yeah, I do appreciate you sharing that, um, Deborah. So, so just wrapping up then, um, what would you say, and I'm kind of interesting as well because you, you work, you're a mother-daughter business, um, what have been the, the, the key things that you've learned through running your own business with your family member? Oh, boy. <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel like, you know, um, it is a running a business is like putting your evolution on um, like speed dial. I don't. It's like, <laughs> it's so That's a really cool. good. I like that. That's a really good little little saying. I like that. <laughs> there's so much we've learned. There's so much. There's uh, we started off like the, how we started this business was we just knew we didn't want to use leather. We hadn't e- eaten meat in ten years. We could never make it out of leather. But that was the starting point. Um, we weren't vegans. We just didn't eat meat or chicken or anything. We just it wasn't even in our headset, right? So what did we try to do to elevate um, the, the faux leather? We put silk lining in it, thinking, oh, we'll elevate <sighs> it by using silk. This is make it so pretty and upscale. Then we realized, oh, silkworms died for silk? Really? Oh, okay. So, so in the five years, our evolution is our learning about, oh, we don't use silk anymore. We don't use this. We don't use PVC. We've now become so, we keep rolling and rolling towards sustainability and learning more and more about it. And the more we learn, the more we change and evolve our product and who we are as people too. So um, it's amazing what you because you have to learn so much when you have your own business about everything yeah and um so it's been great on so many personal and uh professional levels to to start your own business wonderful so final question then what's your long-term brand Uh, sorry your long-term brand (laughs) what's your long-term vision for your brand and for yourself well i think our long-term vision is to to become a sustainable um hands-free bag company um which is the direction that we're heading in with with you know changing the name to hfs collective um we're planning on introducing since we have the overnight tote maybe adding some travel items that can go into the tote um for for overnight um more wallets our customers keep asking us for wallets <laughs> to go inside the bags but everything related you know like yeah in every, like in in, in sets so, um, yeah, we'll see. We're hoping like, you know, next season to come out with, you know, totes and maybe more materials than just the Pinatex with the um, Ultra Suede. So we're going to just hopefully keep evolving. 
Brilliant. I love the sound of that. So you've got some uh, some excellent, unique products. I look forward to yeah hearing about your, your new ones as you go along. You've shared some fabulous insights, Deborah. It's been great having you on the show. Really appreciate it. Thank you so well, much. Thank, thank you, Katrina. It was really nice talking to you. So that was Deborah Denniston from HFS Collective. You can find out more at hfscollective.com. And that link is on the show notes page at veganbusinessmedia.com forward slash podcasts and going to episode 91. Now for our vegan business news roundup. A new monthly market launches this weekend, that's 19th of November 2017, if you're listening in the future, in Sydney, Australia. Organised by Vegan New South Wales, formerly the Vegan Society New South Wales, the outdoor market will be held on the third Sunday of every month at the Portugal Community Centre in the inner city suburb of Marrickville between 9am and 4pm. While the main focus is on food, there'll also be stalls offering skincare and beauty products, as well as charity stalls. Sydney joins other cities across the globe that have started to run regular vegan markets, including New York, which puts on a monthly event in Brooklyn. In London, UK, blogger Fat Gay Vegan hosts one in Hackney Downs in the East End, while a brand new vegan market in Islington in North London has just launched. Now, I went to the one in Brooklyn recently with my friend and renowned vegan foodie, Demetrius Bagley, and it was fabulous. And now I'm back from my travels, I'm looking forward to checking out the Sydney one this weekend. It's great to see these initiatives continuing to spring up and provide vegan businesses with the opportunity to get in front of and sell their wares to broader audiences. Plant-based dairy alternatives are expected to represent 40% of the combined total of dairy and dairy alternative beverages within three years, up from just 25% in 2016, according to research firm Packaged Facts. In its new report, Dairy and Dairy Alternative Beverage Trends in the US, 4th edition, it says the market for dairy and dairy alternative beverages will reach a projected $28 billion by 2021. The segment's growth is being spurred on by the popularity of plant-based alternatives, which in 2016 alone accounted for barely $6 billion in retail sales. David Sprinkle, Research Director for Packaged Facts, said the significant and ongoing shift from dairy milk to plant-based milk was down to a growing number of consumers who are choosing to cut back on consumption of animal products. Packaged Facts expects new types of dairy-free milks to find wider audiences in 2018. These include barley, hemp, pea, flax and quinoa. It's great to see yet another report evidencing the growth of plant-based milks. Gone are the days when it was just soya milk sweetened or non-sweetened. We're seeing a lot of innovation in this sector, which is fantastic. Finally, a bit of personal news. I recently became a contributor to Forbes, specialising in writing about vegan and plant-based businesses for Forbes.com. And I think it's a sign of how veganism is starting to become part of the mainstream when an iconic US business publication like this is happy to receive regular content on this sector. 
So far, as of mid-November 2017, I've written three articles, one discussing whether or not you should sell your mission-driven brand to a larger company that may not share your values, a profile piece on the brilliant The Land of Kush vegan soul food restaurant in Baltimore, Maryland. You can listen to my interview with owners Greg Brown and Nigel Wright-Brown on episode 62 of this podcast. And my most recent piece is on the future of fast food being vegan. Titled Move Over McDonald's, The Future of Fast Food is Vegan, this particular article has had more than 115,000 views within the first 72 hours. In it, I profiled Plant Power Fast Food, which has two locations on the West Coast with plans for nationwide expansion, the Fast Growing by Chloe, Fast Casual Plant-Based Pioneer Veggie Grill, and vegan vending machine company Le Cupboard. Now, what's interesting and reflective of the packaged foods report I just mentioned is that every single one of the founders of these businesses attributed their success to omnivores who want to eat fewer animal products for their health, the planet and animals. So it's not vegans and vegetarians alone anyway that are driving this change. And this is what we want. You know, vegans are always going to find a good vegan eatery. We want the meat eaters to go into these places, be wowed cut down on and ultimately cut out animal products altogether. And the more places that provide delicious plant-based food, including fast food, the more likely this will happen. So you can check out these articles and follow me on Forbes by going to forbes.com forward slash sites forward slash Katrina Fox. And I'll put a link to that on the show notes page. So that's it for this episode of Vegan Business Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, I'd really appreciate it if you gave it a review and rating on iTunes or any other platform you're listening on. Finally, I encourage you to head over to veganbusinessmedia.com where you can find more resources, including details of my media and PR consultations, copywriting, editing and proofreading services to help you grow your vegan business. I'm Katrina Fox, author of Vegan Ventures, Start and Grow an Ethical Business, and I look forward to catching up with you in the next episode of Vegan Business Talk. Bye for now.